All right, now it's time for questions on Genesis 27. Yes. Okay, you, you did reference and, and speak to this a little bit, but, you know, in uh, Hebrews 11, uh, we're, we're told there in, well, that Isaac is in great faith uh, because of his future blessings that he declared on Jacob and Esau. Uh, how, how would you answer someone who says that is evidence that Christianity is just a bunch of hypocrisy because Isaac is put before us as someone to emulate. Okay, why is Isaac someone to emulate as a believer, a patriarch, a godly man? And we do need to do that because Hebrews 11 verse 20 says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. And also we had already said from Psalm 105 verse 25, after mentioning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Isaac is one of the prophets. It's very clear that he is a, or was a godly man and a model. But then the, your question is, if he has done this in Genesis 27, if he has misstepped here, sinned in Genesis 27, how can we hold him up as a model? Well, the answer is, we all are like this. We all are like this. There is a certain level of sin, certain amount of evil, certain amount of hypocrisy in every one of us. Yep. It should not be open and blatant and consistent because if it's open, blatant, consistent, unrepentant, then that is a sign that one is an unbeliever. Right. But in terms of not being perfect people, all of us are not perfect people in the body of Christ. We're not perfect, ever going to be perfect until we see Christ face to face. The Bible clearly explains that. And if it's a matter of showing the godliness of Isaac, already in chapter 26, we have a chapter um, that explains some of his godliness there. And then the way the rest of the scriptures cite Isaac as one of the godly men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many others, that's, that's certainly the case. So if the Bible says so, we can't deny it. But then, the critic who says, well, Isaac is a bad example. Then the, my question to the critic is, are you a good example? Right. And most, it's not going to be true that the critic is a good example. We can find hypocrisy if he's honest, and if we know the critic well enough, we can find massive hypocrisy in his own life. So he, what he has misunderstood is, that even redeemed people still sin, but they don't practice sin. They don't sin without repentance, without remorse, without regret. They sin while struggling against sin. But the unbeliever, he indulges in his sin. He loves doing it, and he doesn't even have a thought of repenting of it. He will only curb it if it's an embarrassment to him, but he doesn't really repent of it himself. So that's my answer to the critic. All right. Uh, is there a follow-up to that question? Well, didn't it, in those verses show that Esau is exactly that way? He didn't repent. He had no desire to repent. Even though he knew he was wrong, he didn't have a desire to repent, oh, you know, to, to do the things that he knew was right. 
Okay, yes. In our passage, it showed in Genesis 27, even in Hebrews chapter 12, 14 to 17, that Esau is an example of someone who knew what was right, but he did not repent. He knew what was right, but refused to repent. Would you also say that with Isaac, after the fact, whatever sin there was in the midst of it, with him desiring to bless Esau and not Jacob, but then after it happened, he seems to have come to his senses and said that this is the right. What, what is done is done, and it can't be taken back. And he doesn't have regret and remorse that the blessing went to Jacob. And then even as we'll get into next week, the chapter, he blesses him willfully then, knowledgeably, and sends him away because he understands that this is what needs to happen. Yes. In Isaac's case, did he realize that he had done wrong? Well, that's Yes, and that's evident because of what he tells Esau. Yes, I have blessed him and he shall be blessed, right? I have blessed him and that's the way it's going to happen. Then he knew he needed to pronounce a partial blessing, if we may call it that, for, um, in verses 39 and 40 to Esau. He couldn't give to Esau the same that he gave to Jacob. He just announces it, pronounces it, but he's not, um, he's not trying to avoid it. He doesn't keep his mouth shut or he doesn't say, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to keep my mouth quiet until the day I die so that I don't have to say these words to you, my son Esau. He didn't do that. So that's also indicative that he realized what he needed to do. He, he woke up and realized. And then, like you said, in chapter 28, verse 1, he, with awareness, does bless Jacob and sends him off. Yes, sends him off to uh, be in the land of, uh, of his forefathers, the land of Haran. Okay, um, is that all on that question? Okay. No, that wasn't my question. Okay, then the next question. Okay, well, just something that I never noticed. Um, you had mentioned that Isaac was 137 yeah. at this point, which then would put Jacob and Esau at 77. Right, so for some reason, you know, when you're reading this, it seems like Jacob is a young man and his mom is telling him what to do, but they're both very old. I mean, they're both 77 years old. They're advanced in their age. And then also that Jacob was 77 and he wasn't married yet. And in that way, he's like his father in that he didn't pursue it outside of the blessing of his parents, which is indicative of his patience and his submission to his parents, and even his submission to Rebecca. It's not like he's a boy. He's 77, but he still does what his mother tells him to do, whether it was right or wrong. Yes. And then he hadn't pursued marriage on his own. He waited for the, for the proper time. Yes, okay, that's a good point. That if Isaac is 137, then Jacob and Esau would have been 77, and we know that because in chapter 25, chapter 25, 26 says, Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. 60 when she gave birth to them. So he is about 77 years old, Jacob is. Esau had already married. We don't know at what age, but he was already married, but not Jacob. So he had to have a lot of patience until that time that he did get married. And then when he went to the land of Haran, he didn't marry 
Rebecca, uh, sorry, Rachel and uh, Leah until seven years later. So he would have married at the age of about 84. 84. And he lived to be 147 years old. Though that's how long he was married. And if he waited from the age of 13, from puberty to age 77, that's a long time to wait to have patience before marrying. So in that case, you, you see all three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them, children were a part of the, I mean, having children was a necessary component of the realization of the promise of God. And in all three cases, Abraham was 100, Isaac was 60, after 20 years of barrenness, and then Jacob is 84 before he's even married, and then begins to have family. And so in all three cases, it wasn't what is natural and normal, which is you get married when you're younger and you have your children and your family when you're in your youthfulness. They both, all, all of them had to wait a long time. Yes. Right, the youngest being 60. They all had to wait. That's right. They all had to wait a long time. And that shows also the, the need for patience and perseverance yeah. and, and uh, to shake off anxiety and, and things like that. Uh, as you're waiting to find a godly wife. Yeah. So they had to wait patiently. Wait patiently. Through the affliction. Yeah, and in their case, they actually knew by the word of God that they had, like you said, they had to wait for a son. They had to have a son. And yet they didn't for that long. In all three cases, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So brother, the cell of the birthright by way of the red pottage, the morsel of meat, meant nothing. It must have meant nothing. Otherwise, his mom would have remembered, or especially his dad would have remembered, well, he already sold the birthright. He gave it up already. And we know that it was valid. We know that it was something because God quotes it. The scriptures quote it in Hebrews 12. We read, you know, for the for a morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. Um, so why didn't Isaac acknowledge that <coughs> and forego the birthright given to Esau and just give it to Isaac, which ultimately, by God's sovereignty, happened anyway. But what I, Isaac, who's a, and I'm very careful at this point because Isaac is a patriarch and one of God's true elect. Why did not Isaac have enough wisdom and discernment not to mention memory, to recall the sale of that birthright of his eldest son to his youngest son and use that to convey the, the blessings to Isaac with all, all this other stuff. Yes. Why did Isaac act in the way in which he did? Well, some commentators attribute that to his age and lack of memory. That that's why he did it. It may be that, but it doesn't tell us explicitly why. So it's hard to know why. Some attribute it to him being forgetful because of his age, being 137. Okay, so that may be the reason why. But another thing that others have said, which I don't think is correct, that whatever was done earlier, like with... The oracle from God in Genesis 25, 23, that God gave to Rebekah. Yeah. 
and this incident of selling the birthright, that these were not told to Isaac. Mm -hmm. Isaac did not know about them. Some commentators have proposed that option as well. Could that be, brother? That's significant. I find that those two hard to believe. I find them hard to believe that Rebecca did not report both incidents and that Jacob and Esau never reported anything to their parents about the sale of the birthright. I find it hard to believe that. It would be essential. What's that? It would be essential for the parents to know that because they're the one that distribute the birthright. Yes, it would be essential for them to know it. And if conversations like this one in 27, two times it says, uh, one time Rebecca heard uh, Isaac say to Esau, go hunt game for me and then I'll bless you. And then in the other case, it was reported to Rebecca that Esau bore a grudge and wanted to kill his brother Jacob, right? So if those kinds of things could be overheard or reported, it's hard to imagine that the incidents of chapter 25 were not reported to Isaac. So I don't think that that speculation by some commentators has grounds. If there's any grounds, it might be that he was forgetful. If there's anything, but the text doesn't say that either. Yeah. Is it possible that Isaac's love for Esau was so great that he desired to give him a blessing because that's his son, it's his own firstborn, and he really yes. wants to have a blessing for his son, and he works this all up so that it can happen, but God overruled it. Overruled okay, it. yes. Now, the other factor we did see that he loved Esau, right? He loved Esau, and he was the firstborn. So he loved Esau because of Esau's skills, and he also loved him because he was his firstborn. Now, it is this happens all the time, that because of those reasons, the love of the parent toward the child, um, those are the things that drive the actions of the parent. And it's natural affection. And those things are nice and good, but they have to be curbed. They have to be uh, modified. They have to be informed by greater and spiritual reasons. Right. So the spiritual component has to dominate any kind of natural affection for children or even children to parents. The spiritual component has to rule. And if that's the case, that that's what was happening with Isaac, it's understandable why he did it. It's not justifiable. But it's understandable why he did it for that reason. Remember, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34 to 39, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he meant that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's what happens because of the spiritual reasons. Because of spiritual reasons or causes That's why there's conflict in the home. Okay? Then, uh, was there a follow-up on this one? I was just going to kind of say what Michael said, or my thought. Um, Obviously, Isaac was a godly man and probably very wise. I assume he spent many years praying for Esau's salvation from God to God. So it's almost like, I don't know if he was fully 100% tricked, you know, maybe he was in that state he was in health-wise at the time. And when he was 
violently shaking and upset. It's almost like, I think it's almost more he's upset at himself because he realized what he was trying to do, uh, basically overriding God's will and taking matters into his own hands. Uh, good, I, by, I, by giving Esau, wanting to give Esau a blessing. When he probably knew deep inside that he was not a godly person and it, it should serve him. Right. Okay, so deep down, because he loved his son, he was hoping and wanting Esau to actually get, receive that blessing. The, the spiritual part. The spiritual part. Yes. yes. Even though he knew that he wasn't uh, godly. Even though he knew he wasn't godly. So he's desiring it. Well, if we assume that Rebekah told Isaac that... The older shall serve the younger, Genesis 25, 23. Then he would have known that, that it was impossible. No matter what he does, no matter what he prays, it would have been impossible. Um, another thing like that is when Moses was asking God to spare the people after they worshiped the golden calf and God said he was going to destroy them. Um, Exodus 32, 32. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Moses wanted to exchange his life for the people, but God said, no, it's not going to happen. He had that desire, but God informed him by a special oracle that it's not going to happen. It's likely Isaac knew that. So if he were to act contrary to it, praying and desiring in a spiritual true sense, well, God, maybe you didn't really mean it, or God, maybe you will change your mind and save him, then he would have been crossing his uh, boundaries on that. But yes, that he loved him and wanted him to have the best, yes, I think that that's certainly the case. Okay, now moving on to another question. Yeah, I just had a question. Um, you see this a lot in the Old Testament where the Father will pronounce a blessing or they'll talk about curses and stuff and those things typically I mean, come about. But we don't normally do that, you know, in our day. Um, pronounce a blessing or curses and it you know, comes about with my children or whatever. Can you kind of explain that, like how that operated in that? Okay, the, the pronouncing of blessings and cursings on children. Uh, we don't... Like, yeah, kind of anybody, you know, will say, you know, like he says, verse 29, Cursed be everyone who curses you, blessed be everyone who blesses you. Um, that's always kind of... I, I never really, I guess, can't get an answer on that. Like, I see it happening, you know, they pronounce blessing or cursing, but I just, we don't go around doing that today. Or... Okay. Um, firstly, uh, I just noticed I that I... The Democrats, if I could, but, uh... Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. So, wh what, why don't we do that, or what's unique about their role, and, or should we do the same? That's your question. Um, I've been saying Psalm 105, uh, 105, verse 25, but actually it's verse 15. Uh, I just wanted to confirm um, in 
Psalm 105, verse 9, it says, The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, verse 10, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Okay, and then verse 15, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets, plural, no harm. Isaac was clearly a prophet based on this. Based on this. So if Isaac was a prophet, then he did it. His blessing in chapter 27 was as a prophet, in the role of a prophet. That's the sense in which he did that. However, we do have a similar experience, not in a prophetic sense, but in a prayerful sense. Not in a prophetic, but in a prayerful sense, we, we should be desiring blessings and even cursings. Yeah. Blessings and even, how do I say that? Why do I say that? 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. We know this verse because of one word, but we don't know the first part of the verse. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Maranatha. We know that word. That's an Aramaic word transliterated in English as Maranatha. O Lord, come. It's a brief prayer calling on the Lord Jesus to return, a desire for his return. But the first part, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Or your Bible might say he is to be accursed. Well, he's still pronouncing it. However, we phrase it. He's pronouncing a curse on anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. Right. right? And so Paul did that there. He did it generally. Um, but then in specific cases, when people reject the gospel... Curses are pronounced on them. The Apostle Paul, he did so in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 13. Book of Acts chapter 13. When he's preaching in the synagogue, one, one Sabbath he had a very good reception, but then the next time he went there, he didn't have a good reception because the envious, jealous Jews, they... Uh, were jealous that a lot of people were giving Paul attention. So they created a mob and they instigated the persecution against the apostles. And then it says, verse 50, some believed and others didn't. Verse 50, but the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They shook off their dust uh, in protest against them. The dust of their feet in protest against them. Shaking the dust off the feet is a curse or a visible or a token of a curse that he's pronouncing on them for rejecting, persisting in persecuting and blaspheming God, persecuting the church and blaspheming Christ. Right. So he pronounced that curse on them right there. 
chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. There too, some believe and others disbelieve. In Acts 18. And then in verse 6. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. Paul would first go to the Jewish synagogue. And as long as they received him, he would stay there. But once they rejected him, or some of them rejected him, once there was a persecution and blasphemy against Christ, then he would leave there and go to the Gentiles in that same city. And before he did that, he said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. I did my responsibility. I taught you the truth. Now that you reject it, the blood, the guilt is on your own head. You will be punished by God on the day of judgment. Now I'm going to others and looking for an audience among the Gentiles. Not that all the Gentiles will hear, but he's going to find some of them among the Gentiles. And this curse would even apply to the Gentiles if they didn't believe. Whoever is blaspheming, persecuting, resisting, the curse is on them. Because they don't love the Lord. Well, if this is done like this, I think we ought to do the same thing. And do so for our own children too. Desire for their blessings. But then, if it comes to a point, and these days, this clear demarcation is happening more and more in Christian families, that many times... The children, son or daughter, the children, but actually especially daughters and especially white college educated daughters are coming out of university very corrupted and very anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-human, even though they claim to love humans, and anti-parents, anti-authority. They are coming out as graduates like that. And when they do that, what are the parents supposed to do? Are they supposed to say, honey, uh, let's just get along, okay? Um, I, won't, I won't say this word or that word anymore. I won't bring up politics anymore. I won't bring up religion anymore. I won't do any of this because we really love you, we, sweetie. We really love you and we want you to keep coming to our home for birthdays and celebrations. And we, we still need to have family reunions and outings. We still need to do all that. So let's just avoid all of this contentious stuff. Is that the right approach? No. No. The right approach is to tell sons and daughters the truth. And if they resist and blaspheme, then they need to be expelled. They need to be isolated. They need to be told that they are sinning against the God of heaven. They are sinning against the gospel of Christ. And they are persecuting the church who's trying to show them the way of salvation. Because they, their minds have been corrupted. That's what we need to do and, to, and say to them. Pray for them to repent, but if they don't repent, counsel them to repent, but if they don't repent, then send them away. Send them away. Send them away. And in some cases, they will come back. In some case, but our duty is to do what's right. Whether as parents or whatever situation, our duty is always to do what's right. Not to be utilitarian, not to be so pragmatic that we try to manipulate the situation to get the best possible outcome 
in our own weak and feeble, sinful minds. No, we have to do what the Bible says. Do what the Bible says. Let God be God. Let God be God. And we just do what we're supposed to do. Do that which is good and right and true in the eyes of the Lord. So basically you're saying that the idea of cursing and blessing all goes back to uh, people's rejection or uh, acceptance of Christ. Like how like Paul did in Galatians 1, being one preaches another gospel way to be cursed. Yes. Well, yes, in, the, in this context of what we're talking about, yes, blessing and cursing like that. But sometimes it's not in relation to you or I personally talking to somebody about the gospel and receiving a resistance that way in a personal encounter. It might be somebody distant, somebody you've never even met. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's good and right for us. For example, let's say dictators in foreign countries or dictators in American states or cities. When dictators are behaving in very wicked ways against the Christian church, against the God of heaven, and against people and basic decency and the expectation of law and order, when they do that, it's right and good for us to pray for their repentance, but also, if they don't repent, pray for their retribution. Pray that God judges them and executes his righteous retribution against them if they will not repent. And meantime, do what we need to do in order to resist them. Okay. So you said that we as redeemed sinners have the right and authority to curse unredeemed, reprobate sinners. Yes. So I know there's a good explanation for this, but let me read this first. Um, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, and I'll start in verse 10. No, verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, and yours may say angelic medicines. Verse 11. Or as angels, holy angels, versus us sinners, even though we're redeemed. Or as angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. And in Jude, verse 8, it says this. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities or angelic majesties. Yet Michael, the holy angel, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring against him, Satan, a raging accusation, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. So my point is, how is it that we as sinners, redeemed sinners, can pronounce curses on lost, possibly reprobate sinners, when the holy angel, the holy angel, Archangel Michael, who some think is actually Christ, 
uh, can does not bring a ray of accusation against the evil one, but says the Lord rebuke you. So how can we pronounce curses on other sinners when even the holy angel, Archangel Michael, cannot say anything or bring an accusation against Satan when I'm I'm sure there's a good reason because you gave us verses that justify that we can curse, pronounce curses on the the ungodly, but not even Michael would do that on the devil. Okay, in verse 9, it's correct that 2 Peter 2 and Jude are parallel accounts. Okay, 2 Peter and Jude are parallels. The answer to the question is in verse 9, Jude 9. But said, the Lord rebuke you. Right. The Lord rebuke you. Uh, not me, but the Lord. Yes. That's the, that's the issue. That's exactly right. That's the issue. It's not based on us, not based on our goodness, not on our authority, not on our whims, not on our uh, motives, evil motives. It's not based on anything like that, but it's based on our calling upon the Lord to rebuke and the rebuke is not going to be um, now, now, Johnny, Johnny, an attack on the hand. That's not what it means the Lord rebuke you. It's a judgment. But the judgment comes from the authority of God himself. Right. The character and the authority of God, not based on us. And since we're the body of Christ and his judgment runs through us. We are the can, spokesman of it. He can, he can use yes. us to pronounce a curse on Yes. Whoever he wants to. Yes. The body of Christ, we are the spokesmen uh, of doing this, of announcing it to others. We should not be doing it carelessly. We, we can't do it on a whim. We have to do it with righteous judgment. For example, John seven twenty four, 24. Uh, do not judge according to appearance, but when you judge, judge with righteous judgment. Right. So... We should say the Lord rebuke you with righteous judgment. Not based on human will, not based on human authority. Not based not, on emotion. Not based on emotion, yeah. yes. But brother, what about so, the scriptures? Bless them that curse you. Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. It doesn't say curse them that curse you. It says bless them that curse you. We're to love and pray for our enemies. I, I, I just don't see how that jives with us pronouncing curses on the enemies that Christ directs us to love and to pray for. Okay, but okay, it's true. Romans 12 says, bless and curse not. Okay, did Christ bless and curse not? Yes or no? Did Christ bless and curse not? He pronounced curses on a lot of... uh, He pronounced curses for sure, but did he also bless and curse not? Yes? What's an example of Jesus blessing and cursing not? I'm looking for specific examples. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23. He said that. What's another example? How about the rich young ruler? He, he explained the truth to the rich young ruler, but when he walked away, he did not pronounce a curse on the rich young ruler, right? Right. 
Okay. Any more? The adulterous woman. The adulterous woman. Okay. He blessed her. He didn't curse her. John chapter 8. Okay. So my point in, with, with these illustrations, and there's many more, that there are occasions when we are supposed to bless and curse not. The problem with people who don't want to pronounce a curse today in the Christian church, they think that there is absolutely no occasion for us to pronounce a curse. Because whatever Paul meant in Romans 12, bless and curse not, it has to agree with these three examples we gave of Christ, blessing and cursing not. But Paul in Romans 12 could not contradict what he did in Acts 13, what he did in Acts 18, what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And, and let him remain as a reprobate. Isn't that the implication? But that's a curse because you're not, you're not, saying, you're not saying, oh God, change him. Oh God, keep changing him. And you're, not, you're saying, okay, let him remain as a reprobate. Right. That's, that's putting an additional... Um, malediction on the reprobate, the unrepentant reprobate. It's not putting a blessing on that reprobate. It's putting an additional curse or malediction on that reprobate. And that's not, nobody would even do that today. Nobody even does that. Put an additional. So, so could we say that basically the Christians pronouncing a curse upon an unrepentant sinner is just basically praying that God would do what he has said he's going to do in his word. So it's not us formulating our own desire for them to get it. But it's us saying, God, this person has rejected you in your word. And I pray that as you will in the end, get revenge on all those who sin against you. But I pray that you will do so now, sooner even, just because he's continuing to... Uh, persecute your church, or he's continuing to blaspheme you and to to trod upon you and, and your Christ. And so, you know, we are asking God to do what He's already said He's going to do, which isn't an unrighteous thing. To pray that God would accomplish His will and His purpose on this earth. And so it's not that we're out of anger, hate, malice, cursing someone. We're just praying that God, this person has rejected you and your Christ. So we're asking that you will now do what you said you will do to those who do that. Exactly. It's not human invention. And it's not supposed to be out of spite. It's not supposed to be a knee-jerk reaction and anger and bitterness. It's not like that. It is with righteous judgment. Do not judge according to appearance, but when you judge, judge with righteous judgment. And if we're saying or pronouncing a curse, well, we're not going to change whatever God has already said in his word that he's going to do to the wicked on the day of judgment. We are just conforming our mind, our attitude, our values about that situation. We're, we're conforming it to the word of God, to the will of God. So we are speaking in agreement with God. We agree with what he says. But we're assuming that that's a reprobate that we're pronouncing this curse upon. We can't, we're not omniscient. We don't know such things. How about the Apostle Paul? He had Christians killed. He consented to the killing and torturing of Christians and capturing of Christians. So what about believers that pronounce curses on him? No doubt, most of them happened because he was exceedingly wicked. 
Okay. And Paul was not reprobate. He was one of God's elect. How, we don't know all these things. We, we don't know who's reprobate and who's elect, you know? Okay. We don't know who's reprobate and who's elect. That's a true statement. But where in Scripture, based on our ignorance of who the elect and the reprobate are, where in Scripture does it say, because we don't know who they are, we can never curse them in, in due time. We can never justly curse them. Does the Bible ever, ever make a statement like that? And we know it's not there. But then if it is a sin, if it is wrong, if it's not erring on the side of justice or righteousness to just pronounce a blessing all the time. My next question is, does the Bible say that we ought always to bless people, always bless them, because God's always going to use the blessing that we pray for them and pronounce on them in order for them to convert to Christ? Does the Bible teach that too? No. No. Sometimes the Bible, te- uh, the Bible teaches that sometimes God brings people very low before he converts them. No doubt. So if we are praying for them and we say, God, take away, take away his house, take away his fancy car, take away his job, don't, don't let him have any of those things and bring him to his knees and make him realize that he needs you. Well, when we say take those things away, we're pronouncing a curse. Right? Right. It's going to be a temporary curse with a greater fulfillment, hopefully, but we don't know what God's going to do, even if we ask God for curses or if we ask God for blessings. But don't you think as sinners, even even as we are redeemed sinners, that out of a vindictive spirit, we could, by the flesh, seek to pray such a thing when it's really out of the spirit of vindictiveness? Well, yes, it is possible. It is possible that out of the flesh, in a spirit of vindictiveness, we might say or pray that way. That's possible. But it could also be, but that I already addressed that. I said, with righteous judgment, in due course. I've, I've repeated that many, many times. That to avoid the spirit of knee-jerk, fleshly vindictiveness, um, we have to be on guard. That's, that's all very true. The examples I gave in the Bible are examples of that, of understanding the situation and then properly doing so. But I submit that the people who don't want to pronounce a curse, they never will do it. And they never have an answer to Paul in Acts 13, 50 to 52. They don't have an answer to Paul in Acts 18, 6. They don't have an answer to Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. They don't have an answer to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, remove the wicked man from among you. They don't have an answer to Paul in Galatians 5.12. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves, meaning cut off their sexual organ. But isn't that why we need the Holy Spirit? That's why we need the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we can't depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us into our understanding, guide us into our reactions... The preparations of the heart and the answer of the tongue is of the Lord? Yes. If that can't be true in our lives, then we're absolutely hopeless in being obedient to any of the But every answer of our tongues is not of the Lord. No. Every single answer. But that ought to be true in the 
in the obedient Christian's life. He ought to be able to recognize that uh, God has to be in charge of this before okay. I speak. Okay. Now, it's true, the role of the Holy Spirit. But going back to your last question, it's true that out of the flesh, in the flesh, we might pronounce a curse. No doubt. Then that problem is on us. Right. And God will hold us accountable. But it's also true that in the flesh, we might have an excessive natural affection, wrongful affection, even a spiritually wrongful affection for someone and that comes out of the flesh. Is that not what happened with Isaac? Didn't Isaac put too much credibility on his natural affection for Esau? Yeah. And if Isaac also was trying to wiggle his way around the oracle of God, the unchangeable un oracle of God that um, Jacob is blessed and Esau is cursed, Genesis 25, 23. Then he has crossed boundaries, not from just physical, but even the spiritual boundaries right. in asking for the soul of Esau. So it's also possible that whatever we call it, blessing, loving, caring, that we do it in a fleshly way and cross spiritual boundaries, which God has not permitted us to do. Right. Why is that sin never addressed? Why is it only the potential that we might wrongfully curse someone? Why is that one always the objection? And I, say, I submit the reason is they don't look at Scripture correctly. What about all these passages I just mentioned? And here's another one. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. If a brother, this, that's 1 John 5, 16. If a brother commits a sin leading to death... Don't make a request to God on that. So stop praying about it, he says. Are, are we ever going to practice that? Those who object at any time or, or just generally to curses, they never pronounce a curse and they never have answers to all these scriptures I presented from Acts to Galatians to 1 John. And, and there's many, many more. Yes. Just like an example of a blessing and a curse um, without having perfect knowledge of the, the person, right? Yes. So one example of a curse would be 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul says he, when he's judged this one who's committed this sin and has delivered him over to Satan so that his, you may be saved. He doesn't know if this person is going to come back to the church. That's the point of church discipline to remove the wickedness but also in hope that they, if God would grant it, that they would come back, right? So that's an example of a curse even though he doesn't, he doesn't obviously have omniscience knowing the heart of the person or what's going to happen in the future. Yes. So that's an example of a curse. But an example of a blessing would be Simon the sorcerer was baptized you know, by his profession of faith, but they didn't have perfect knowledge of him. It was later you know, um, manifested that he was not a true believer because he tried to buy the Holy Spirit. Yes. So there, there's an example of a blessing and a cursing without perfect knowledge of the people. Good. I'm glad you brought those two up. First Corinthians 5, remember we said, remove the wicked man. So, and Paul says, I've already judged him. And now you, Corinthian church, you need to judge him. Remove the wicked man. But Paul doesn't know. He's hoping, as you said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. First Corinthians 5, 5. That's true. Paul did not have perfect knowledge, ultimate knowledge of the soul of that man. But 
he was supposed, they were supposed to, and he did, act in a judgmental way or in a way to pronounce a curse, a judgment, delivering him over to Satan and even removing him from the body of the local church. For the good of the church. Be, for the good of the church, yes. And for his punishment, but also for his good if he happens to repent because then he's going to look back and say, you know, I had a lot of blessings back there, like the prodigal son. I had a lot of blessings back there. I'm going to go back there because I realize I did wrong. And by the way, um, we had to do that. Um, we had to do that with someone. And that one actually has come back. Um, we had to do that with someone. And it took about a year. But that one woke up and then he came back. And at the time, we told him that he was sinning. We told him he was sinning. And he wouldn't repent at the time. Then he, then he had in his flesh, he had the audacity to say, but is it the unforgivable sin? Oh, no. He, he actually asked me that question. Is it the unforgivable? And I, I, I told him what he needed to hear, but he <laughs> then, he then, after about a year, he did repent. And then he contacted me and, and someone else. He contacted us and told us he, he did completely wrong. And now he's back into fellowship with us. But we did judge him, or we did punish him, we did confront him, we did rebuke him for the sin he was committing at the time that drove him away from us. And then while, during that period, we didn't maintain contact with him. We didn't maintain contact. We prayed for him, but we didn't maintain contact with him. Okay, so that's the First Corinthians 5 example, but we didn't know. We just deal with whatever circumstances we have the way the Bible expects us to deal with it. So the other example you gave is another excellent one. In Acts chapter 8, Simon, Simon the magician, he along with others in Samaria, they, they repented, they believed, and they were immersed in water, right? Correct? Okay, Acts 8, Acts 8 verse 9. Now there was a, a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized or immersed in water, <coughs> men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. We'll see that that's superficial belief. And after being baptized or immersed, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem now. His true heart comes out, even though the blessings of hearing the gospel, believing the gospel temporarily, and even being immersed and in the fellowship of the church has happened so far, right? right. And the amazement of the miracles and the things happening. He's all uh, reveling in this, this Simon, the magician. Verse 18. 
Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Outside of the Bible, outside of the Bible in the apostolic and post-apostolic period, it is universal outside of the Bible in those writings by pastors and theologians, post-apostolic age, apostolic and post-apostolic age, that this Simon never did repent. He never did. But remember, he, it says in verse 21, your heart is not right before God. 22, <clears throat> repent that the intention of your heart may be forgiven. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Gall of bitterness and bondage of iniquity. Well, who's in the bondage of iniquity? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Right? John 8, 36. So an unbeliever is in the bondage of iniquity. Well, what's the one phrase? Well, uh, verse 22, related to our subject. If possible. If possible. Right. Peter does not know ultimately if Simon is going to repent or God is going to grant repentance to Simon the magician. Peter doesn't know that. But he does rebuke him and put a curse on him about what is actually happening to him and his life that he is not right with God. Um, because he says that the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. But up to this point, whatever God intends for all wicked people, all reprobate people is going to happen to you, Simon. But pray if possible. So there also we have somebody unknown. Initially, blessings were given to him. And did they sin in blessing him in this case in Acts 8? No. Of course not. Because they did according to the circumstances. We're all supposed to do that. And eventually, the true nature of people will uh, rise to the surface. Yes. When even Jesus was, uh, he wasn't quick to curse because when his own disciples wanted him to call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritan cities, he rebuked them for it. Right. Even though the people had rejected him. Okay. Yes. So, so uh, speaking of another example of Christ not being quick to curse, it's in... Luke chapter 9, remember that the disciples went among the Samaritans in, the, in, in a village of the Samaritans. And it says in verse 53, 9.53. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. <coughs> so they, that, in that case, they didn't welcome 
them. It wasn't a matter of them hearing the gospel, seeing miracles, seeing Christ face to face, and, and things of that nature. They weren't imbibing the truth for a while, whether they believed it or not, and then they decided to blaspheme and curse and this and that. That's not the situations, and Jesus knows that's not the situation, and James and John were too quick to call a curse on them. Versus Capernaum and Bethsaida, whereas Jesus yeah. pronounced a curse on them, because yes. he was there with them for so long, but they wouldn't refuse to believe. Yes, yes. Versus the other cities, such as Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. Verse 11, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day, that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. But it, does this apply only to them? Ooh. Verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Right. There, he's making it a universal application in verse 16. Not restricted to Jesus, not restricted to Paul and Peter. He's making it universal. All right. Paul said, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema. Yes. What does that mean? If you pronounce that, let him be anathema. What does it mean? Didn't Paul say, and this is Galatians 1. Didn't Paul say that if someone preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema, let him be accursed? Right. May a curse come on him? What does that mean? Was it only Paul who could say it and write it? Nope. Or if somebody else reads it, then it applies to him if he believes a different gospel. But we can never show somebody and tell somebody, listen, if you believe a different gospel, you're under a curse. We can't confirm with a curse the word of God. Is that also true? That we can't confirm to others that there's a curse on them because they believe a different gospel. No, not true at all. No, that's Galatians 1, 6 to 10. Yes, Paul wrote it. Paul pronounced it on the Galatian heretics. But if there's a parallel to what Paul's saying in Galatians to today, we have not only the right not only the privilege. That's right. It's a right. It's a privilege, but it's an obligation. Yep. It's an obligation to tell the other who believes in a different gospel, there's a curse on you because you believe this different gospel. Don't you fear God? You need to repent of that. Or else, and pray to the Lord if possible, <coughs> that the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. That's what we need to say to them. Right. So it's, it's not just an option, but it's actually a it's a so, duty. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. Because it's in the Bible. And if we're not practicing faith, which is conforming our life to the Bible, then we're committing sin. We're committing sin. So it, it really is trying to present a higher ethic than 
or a different ethic than what's in the Bible. Because it's proceeding from our own flesh and mind, not from the submission of the Lord. Yes. It is proceeding from a higher. And by the way, some people who take this to the nth degree, love, 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 never say, uh, pronounce a curse or never say any contrary word to somebody sinning, committing a crime, whatever. Eventually, those same people will end up pronouncing a curse on us who are trying to be faithful to the Bible. So they don't really believe in their heart of hearts. They don't truly believe what they say. They avoid us. They condemn us. They curse us. They say, go to hell. They'll say, I, I, I hope you burn forever in hell. They'll say things like that to us when we're just trying to be faithful to the Bible. So their love, their love potion is actually full of poison. Right. It's not true biblical love. In the back. So, so we could say, we say that the... The biblical way for a Christian to be in, using taking all these verses together, is to love your enemy by preaching the gospel to them. Yes. Pray for their repentance. Yes. Which is a blessing. Pray for their repentance. But not knowing what God's will is for that individual, also ask God that if this person does not repent, give him what he justly deserves. Correct. Which is then pronouncing a curse. Correct. And so in, in, in that way, we're doing what God commands by praying for them because we don't know their eternal status for their salvation. But then also praying that if their eternal status, if their name is not written in God's book, that he does deliver to them what they deserve, which is all the curses that he's pronounced on their branches. Yes. And in no way are we then sinning against God or that against that person because we're not, you know, none of the love verses say love constantly forever with no waiver. But it, but it you know, there, there's no demarcations of love forever to the end of time. But it says love them, and that's by preaching the gospel. To love someone is to tell them what's the truth. Yes. Right? To bless them is to let them hear the truth. Yes. But then also... To love God is to want God's will to be done, which is for the reprobate to be cursed. That's right. So is that kind of That's a it. roundabout way to look at it, that yes, we do follow the commands to love our enemies as ourselves because we want them to be saved, so we preach the gospel, but we also love God first and foremost, and we want his name to be uh, risen up among mankind in his justice as well as his love. That's right. Yeah, that's a good summary of the, the right approach. That's a good summary. Um, before I go to the next comment or question on this, I wanted to illustrate again within the book of Romans because uh, Romans chapter 12 was alluded to earlier. It says, bless and curse not, Romans twelve fourteen. right? Bless and curse not. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Romans 12, 14. We're supposed to do that. Correct? And Romans 10, 1. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them 
is for their salvation. So that's a way to bless them, to pray for them, right? To love them, to pray for their salvation. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And that includes prayer. It includes preaching, which is also in Romans 10, Romans 10, 14, sending a preacher to preach to them. Okay, now, if all of that is true, what about then in Romans 11, Romans 11, when the apostle, he quotes from a couple of passages in the Old Testament, 11, 11.7, what then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Paul says that's also true. But if Paul quotes... From these two passages of the Old Testament, from David and from Moses, if he quotes from them for this, how can he do so when he teaches us in 12, 14, bless and curse not? How can he do so when he says that he himself practices, verse, chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation? How can he do so when he said in 10, 14, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So send them a preacher so that they can hear and believe and be saved. Right? right. So that's also blessing. Prayer is blessing and preaching is blessing. But he pronounces a curse in Romans 11, 7 to 10. Does he not? Sure does. So there's a place for Romans 12, 14. 10.1 and 10.14. And there's also a place for Romans 11, eight, uh, 7 to 10. No doubt. There's a place for that, a time for that. And you summarized it well back there when you just, the, the previous comment. That's the way. Does it not have to do with apostolic and prophetic authority? David, the prophet, Paul, the apostle? Is it apostolic authority? Is it limited to the apostles? Yes or no? What evidence do we have that it's not limited? Well, one was the example we just mentioned when the brother mentioned Galatians 1. He mentioned Galatians 1, 6 to 10. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 6 to 10. It, does that mean we only can encourage people to read the Bible and then to dawn on themselves that they have a different gospel and they are under a curse? Or does it mean we should actually explain it to them and tell them you are under a curse? We already decided we have to tell them also. Tell them and then prove it by going to Galatians 1. But another example of how it does not reside in apostolic authority it does not reside in Christological authority, prophetic authority, and apostolic authority. It does not. Here's an example. James 
James chapter 5. James chapter 5. 5.16. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Why is Elijah here as an example? Well, he was a prophet. Is that why he's brought up as an example? Because he was a prophet? No. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Why does James say Elijah was a man with a nature like ours? His experiences are our experiences. Ours are like his. Right? He had blessings and cursings happening in his own life. And we have the same thing happening in our own life. Common experiences. Common experiences of the redeemed, of the elect, the believers. Common experiences. He was a man with a nature like ours. He does not say, now, Elijah was a prophet and he uniquely, he uniquely prayed like this. He doesn't say anything. He goes against that by saying he was a man with a nature like ours. Do we get that point? I've emphasized it. So if that's true, why does he bring it up? Notice, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Three years and six months. He prayed that his own land, where his own countrymen live, his own brothers, his own tribe, his own family, himself, himself, And it would bring hardship to him. And in fact, he did have to leave there and go to Sidon, Tyre, Sidon in that area. He had to go to a widow over there, right? So he prayed what? Did he pray for a blessing? And that's why the earth did not have any rain for three and a half years? No, he prayed for a curse. Because when there's no rain, there's a drought. And when there's no drought... There's no crop. There's no harvest, right? Right. For three years and six months. He prayed for a curse upon his own land and it would also impact him. So we can do that that same thing, he said. Isn't that what he's saying? Why does he bring Elijah up as an example? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So when we see wickedness all around us and we want God to intervene and we want people to wake up, jolt them out of their stupor of sin, we should pray for judgment to come on them. That's a curse. Amen. That's a curse. But then, at the right time, it says in 18, and he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, after some time, he prayed for the blessing to come, and the blessing did come. And this all came by the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. The Lord communicated to... Uh, Elijah, this is what you're supposed to pray now. Yes. And when uh, it was time for it to change, God said, okay, now it's time to change. Yes. 
Yes, so that's how it's applicable to you and me right. in the body of Christ, not just ending with the apostles. And there, we can go to more scriptures for that too. Well, would you say that to Dr. Ish with that is the, the blessing and the curse is all connected to the word of God. Yes. Proclaiming the word of God. Also, Paul in 2 Corinthians said that they were the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. And to some it was life. And to some it was death. And the curse that we give is we preach the word. Yeah. And, and the preaching of the word is is life to the believers and those who aren't hate it. Okay, yes. Okay, that's a good point. That when we preach the word, to some it's going to be an aroma of life, oh, and to another, it. it's going to be, to others, it's going to be an aroma of death. Death to death, right? Yes. Well, we don't know what's going to happen in our audience, right? right? right. If, if we speak to 10 people, or 100 people, right. or 1,000 people, we don't know what's going to happen in that audience, but. When we announce a blessing to the whole audience, the blessing of the gospel, when we tell them the way to escape eternal punishment, the way to know Christ, the way to be redeemed from their sins, to know God, personally know God, and experience Him forever, face to face, right? When we announce these blessings to them, the wicked are already practicing sin, right? But then once we announce the blessing to them and they reject the gospel persistently until they die, did we not do to them a disservice according to the fleshly reasoning? Yeah, we did a disservice because they're going to get a worse punishment on the day of judgment. That's why, we, remember we read Luke 10, 11 to 16? Why is Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum more condemned than Sodom? Because they had the truth preached to them. They had the truth. So, in our thinking, fleshly thinking, and the people of the world and superficial Christianity, they say, no, no, uh, we, we cannot ever pronounce a curse. Always a blessing. But biblically speaking, when we pronounce this blessing, we're actually making it worse for the wicked on the day of judgment. Well, and wouldn't you say to wouldn't you say to that that goes back to the original question even about within our families, right? That that's what we're called to do to proclaim scripture and the gospel and the blessings that come from it, never separated from the warning and the judgment and the curse that comes from rejecting it. And so we are commanded to steal. Yes. Do that. Okay. In our, in our churches, in our families, yes. In in our circle, whatever our sphere of influence is, like. Yes. More on the point of families, even in our own families, and when you say that to somebody today, they are offended, completely offended, and they will condemn you for saying that. However. In the family of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, God told them Isaac is elect and Ishmael is reprobate. And in the family of Isaac and Rebekah, God told them 
that Jacob is elect and Esau is reprobate, and they weren't even born. They were cute and cuddly little boys coming out of the womb. And for a temporary time in their childhood, they were cute and cuddly boys, right? And yet they knew, in the case of Esau, that for his whole life, he would never believe. Never believe. So if they say they don't want to believe that, they can't accept that, well, it's there in the Bible. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. We have to believe whatever God says. Not what we think or what feels good to us. Right. We have to submit to that. And one great true one of the great examples of that is Spurgeon telling the story of his mother praying for him. In the fact that if he would not believe that his soul would be damned for him to hear as a child. Spurgeon's mother prayed for him and said that to him? Yes. That if he would not believe, his soul would be damned to hell. So there you have it. She's praying according to Scripture and announcing it to her own son. And who knows? Like I said, like 1 Corinthians 5 or any other passage, you never know if that person, because of the judgment that we meted out on them, announcing it and also physically driving them away from us, remove the wicked man from among you, 1 Corinthians 5.13, you never know if God will use that for that man's salvation. Right. Which is what we should want above anything else. Yeah, we would want that. Yeah, we would want that. But meantime, according to the circumstances, we need to act in a, in a correct biblical way. And even our passage today shows you can't overthrow the will of God. Okay, and the passage... If, if, yeah. we, if the person manifests unbelief and hostility and we pronounce a curse, and it's God's desire to later save them, we can't overthrow the will of God. God's going to do that. But we're still doing what we... All we, all we can do with what's in front of us. Yes. Just deal with the facts. Okay, all we can deal with is what's in front of us. Deal with the facts... Our passage in Genesis 27 proved that, that we're supposed to do what's right, and even when we do what's wrong, God's will will subvert it. God's will will make sure whatever He wants to happen does indeed happen. One way or the other. Because we can also pray for someone's salvation and it not be God's will. Sure. Yeah. So if it's not right to pray for a cursing because it may not be, then it's also not right to pray for salvation because it may not be. It may not be. We don't know. So then we can't pray for anyone. Yeah, then if we can't, because we can't pray a curse because he might be elect and saved eventually, then why should we pray for salvation contrary to the will of God when he might be condemned forever? And according to Romans 11, there's fewer elect than there are reprobate. No doubt. So there's a greater likelihood that we're going to pray for the salvation of people who are not going to be saved. Yes. Because there's only a remnant that will be saved. Okay, so if we have this dilemma in prayer, this worldly, fleshly, natural, demonic dilemma presented to us, no, 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 never a curse, then the dilemma is brought up in, in Romans 11, 1 to 6, because there he proves the point that the remnant is going to be saved. So our prayers are less answered. We want their salvation, 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 but most of the people for whom we pray are not going to be saved. Right. And we, we could easily see that example when we pray for our nation. 
or pray for other nations. Most of the people in those other nations and even in our own nation will never be saved. Yet we pray for the conversion of our nation, for our neighborhood, right? For all our relatives. We pray for that, but it doesn't happen. Are we sinning? Because we're praying contrary to the will of God, ultimate will of God, secret will of God? No. So we're supposed to do whatever the revealed word of God says. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed here in the Bible belong to us and to our sons that we may observe all the words of this law. You're showing your love for them by praying for their salvation. As Christ said to love your neighbor. Right, right. When we pray for their salvation, we're showing love. Now, one more question or comment back there. I was going to say, uh, it gives us authority too to pray that way. It's Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then 1 John talks about how we ought to walk just as he walked, talking about Christ. Uh, so we should do it to imitate him. Um, but, but the other thing I was going to say is I think that sometimes the hesitation to pray these prayers comes from two things. One, we, we have grown up in a culture that, well, Christian culture hasn't really stressed these things. It's stressed more, you know, the, the whole love, 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 love thing. And so it's foreign to us. But then also I think, I think second is when we, when we view man higher than we view God, when we don't have, you know, I, I've thought about this, and it's hard to say, but it's true. On that final day, even if it's my son who's rejected Christ, yep. I will rise up on that final day and, and say, blessed be the name of the Lord, you know, and cry out for the wicked if he's one of them to be destroyed. Um, but that's hard to say on the side of eternity, but yet we, when we immerse ourselves in the scriptures and we get this exalted view of God and we look at things through a God-centered worldview of everything, it's easier to be able to pray those things. Because yes. we see God as holy, righteous, and, uh, majestic, and yet men have rebelled against Him. When we esteem God, we, and we're, it's a lot easier to uh, pray. Right. Yeah, good. Those... Two points are very good. On the, we have not put God, given Him His due place. That's that's so true. We have it because our culture is so ignorant of Scripture that it's unfathomable and appalling, offensive to them to hear anything like this. They think they have figured out the love of God in the Bible. They think they figured it out, but it's actually worldly, fleshly, and demonic. But what they also said it's just. It is also a just God. So that, to your second point, um, it's hard to imagine it. It's hard to think it now. Just as it was for Moses and his own people. uh, Blot me out of your book, he prayed, right? Paul said, I wish that I were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul wished that. It was impossible, but he wished that, correct? Um, well, when one day we are with the Lord and there is no more sin in our life, we are with Him, our whole mind, our whole attitude 
will be conformed to the image of Christ perfectly. And when that day happens, the scripture tells us what we're going to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Revelation 18, 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. There we will receive this command. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over the, the destruction of the wicked. Revelation 18. Revelation 16. They cry out with a loud voice to the sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long will we judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the right. Yes. Yeah. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the saints praying a good and righteous prayer at the throne of God, correct? And in some cases, the blood that needs to be avenged, it was perpetrated by our own family members. In some cases, right? And so we regret that, let's say a father is put to death by a son. We regret the father doesn't want his son to persecute him and put him to death. And he won't like it when it's actually happening. But ultimately on the day of judgment, he's going to be praying like this and expecting and asking God to avenge his blood. He was put to death by persecution, martyred. He's going to ask God to avenge his blood on his own son. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.